the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. sober words that Jesus speaks here. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and, circle that, and take up his cross and follow me. There's an and here. It's not denying is taking up your cross. It's denying and take up your cross. And what Jesus is going to say here is that the cost of following him is twofold. That what this passage teaches us is that we need to deny self and we need to die to self. Deny and die. It's deny and die. All too often, we water down the cost of following Jesus. The gospel message is presented as a free gift, as if you just call a number and it'll be shipped direct to your door. While God does give salvation freely, it will cost you greatly in the way of this world to follow Jesus. As Pastor Gary will explain, it requires two things of you, denying yourself and dying to the selfishness and sin that saturates your nature. Those things don't just go without a fight, but it's what it takes to truly follow Jesus. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 7, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. So they're on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And it says there in verse 11 that the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. Notice their motive. They're not wanting to learn. They're not wanting to follow him. They're wanting to test him. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Now, here we see him sighing deeply again. Remember when he sighed deeply earlier with the healing of the the deaf and the mute man? And uh, the word earlier in verse 34 was the word stenazo. And here in verse 12 of chapter 8, when it says that he sighed deeply, it is and the prefix ana means that it is more intense. He is sighing deeply. Now I want you to picture he's really irritated. The, the, when he's sighing deeply over the man who is infirm and needs healing, it's a compassionate sighing. It's like, oh, the toll that this world takes on people. And, and, and that's the sighing there. This sighing, he's irritated. He's irritated because they've come with the motive to test him. And all they want him to do is to perform for them. And Jesus is not obligated to perform for people. The miracles that he performed were a demonstration of God's mercy to bring people closer to God. These Pharisees didn't want to become closer to God. They thought they already were. They just simply wanted to discredit Jesus. 
So their motives are completely messed up. And that's why Jesus said, that what a wicked and perverse generation that seeks a miraculous sign. None will be given to it. That isn't to say that Jesus doesn't like miracles to happen. It's saying that if a generation is simply entirely wanting Jesus to perform for them, that's a wicked request. That's a wicked request. Matthew, in his gospel, when he talks about this story, he adds that Jesus says, for none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man will be three three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he talks about how if you really want to see a miracle, just watch for my resurrection, because that's the most supreme and ultimate miracle that will change the entire world. And so Jesus sighs deeply at their ignorance and their disbelief and their desire to simply test him. It says in verse 14 that the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. They get into a boat and the disciples realize, hey, we forgot to bring bread except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. He's talking about yeast. I don't know what the Pharisees and Herod part is, but he's really reminding us that we didn't bring enough bread for the boat trip. That's really what he's saying. No, no, no. Verse 17, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve. This is just a moment, you know, of schooling them, okay? And, and so now they're thinking back to chapter 6. Yeah, okay, 12. They're going to give one word answers here, by the way. Notice this. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? And the story ends. I love this. You know, it's just, I get this scene here where Jesus is like, all right, boys, let's see if we can go over this again. Let me put on my sweater and my tennis shoes, and let's see if I can be Mr. Rogers. Can you say, how many basketfuls were left over after the feeding of the 5,000? Twelve. Very good, boys and girls. Now, how many, only boys, in the boat? Because the girls are smarter. The sisters are like, yeah, sister power. Listen. How many basketfuls were left over out of the feeding of the 4,000? Seven. I mean, this is like Sesame Street, isn't it? Can you say 12? Can you say seven? Do you still not understand? And I have this picture of the guys just going, I, I, I don't really know what he's saying. <laughs> and so it just ends there. That's just the end of this conversation. But here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, in the Bible, especially in Luke's gospel, he even specifically says that the yeast of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. Yeast, you see, is a, is a picture of sin, a type of sin in the Bible. Why? Because it's very insidious. It spreads. And it's, it can sometimes be out of control. And any of you who have, you know, cooked with, uh, cooked bread and yeast and all this stuff, and I've told the story a thousand times about friendship bread that we had at our house and how it exploded all over the kitchen. I'm not going to go over that one again. But the point is that yeast gets out of control. And yeast just kind of grows and, and gets crazy. And Jesus is saying, the Pharisees and Herod, they are about sinful behavior. They have hypocrisy. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. 
And he wasn't talking about literal yeast and bread, and that's what they got stuck on. They're like, I, I think it's because we don't have enough bread. And, and then Jesus has to rehearse the whole scene about, no, 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 bread, that's not the issue, because remember how much I can produce, that's not the issue here. The issue here is the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod being sin and hypocrisy, and he was warning them about the same thing that they should be aware of. Well, verse 22, then they came to Bethsaida. Bethsaida, by the way, is the... Um, was the hometown of Andrew and Peter, they were brothers, and Philip. So three out of the 12 uh, apostles came from Bethsaida. Bethsaida in Hebrew means house of fish. It was a fishing village uh, right on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Now the Sea of Galilee has receded now so that the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee does not include Bethsaida. When you go to Bethsaida today and it's just a bunch of ruins, uh, never been populated again because Bethsaida was one of the three. Remember that Jesus cursed Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum because among those three, Jesus did more miracles than any place else. And so they were more accountable. And that's why he said to them, Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Capernaum. For more miracles have been done among you than anywhere else. And, them, and those of Sodom and Gomorrah will rise up in the days of judgment and they will judge you because you were more, you were more accountable based on, again, what you know, what you see, what you observe. Well, Today, when you go to Bethsaida, it's, it's about uh, a mile or two off of the coast of the Sea of Galilee. But in the day, it was probably, the, the, the shoreline probably went that far up uh, because it's called the House of, of Fish. It was a fishing village. And here it is in Bethsaida that some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, notice this, and led him outside the village. Remember in the previous story, with the guy who was deaf and mute, he just took him away from the crowd. In this case, he takes him completely outside of the village. He wants to do this very privately and uh, not among others. And it says here, more spit, <laughs> when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? Now, in, in this case, this is pretty clear. He's just, I mean, he's just spitting right on the guy's eyes. And, um, and he put his hands on him and he asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. So, you know, basically he says, I'm, I'm, he says, I'm making things out, but they, they look like trees, and, and they're like walking trees. Which, by the way, tells us that this man probably was not born blind, because how would he know what trees look like if he had never seen before? So perhaps something happened that uh, resulted in his blindness. But he describes it at first as like blurry things. He says, I, I, I see people, they look like trees walking around. And once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. And again, the reason why Jesus often cautioned that people shouldn't talk about who he was and what he did so much is because he didn't want people to prematurely make him king. He didn't come to take over the Roman Empire. He's king, all right, but he didn't come to set up his kingdom on earth. Not yet. That'll be his second coming. Uh, but initially, he comes to die for the sins of the world, and he doesn't want people to just crown him as this earthly king. He came to do much more than that. And the crowds would get all stirred up and trying to make him king and overthrow the Roman Empire, and he was always trying to quash that a little bit. Uh, but, but here he is, and he, and he heals this guy. Now, this is a two-stage process. Don't look at this story and think, what's wrong with his power? He's a, a little weak on the first try, and he's got to try it again. The reason why Jesus does this, honestly, is for the benefit of the rest of us. Jesus can heal in one stage, two, three, ten, however much he wants to do, but it's an important story to remind us that sometimes not everything that Jesus does for us is instantaneous. Sometimes it's a process of what God does. 
And some of you who have been sick and you've been praying for healing and the Lord may heal you instantaneously and sometimes He may heal you over a a long process. And I've said before, sometimes He heals us simply by taking us home. And it is His prerogative how He performs His healing touch in our lives. There's nothing in this story that reflects His lack of ability. Uh, He is simply healing this kind of two-stage process and it's a reminder to us that sometimes God works that way in our own life. I think it's for our benefit. Uh, Sometimes the work of God is progressive in our lives. And, you know, I think it's an important principle, not only just in physical healing. The work of God in your life is sometimes going to be progressive. Don't think that you have to learn everything today. Uh, You're going to grow in your faith and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ over a progressive amount of time. The key is just stay tuned into who He is, stay in the Word, grow in your faith, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and watch that progressive work of God unfold in your heart and in your life. Sometimes people put a lot of pressure on themselves that they have to be these spiritual giants right out of the gate. He got saved 15 minutes ago. You you may not know every verse in the Bible. But yet, apply yourself and grow and watch the progressive work of God unfold in your life. Verse 27. Let's finish out the chapter. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, bear in mind that Mark was not one of Jesus' apostles, the, the author of this gospel. He was about 12 years of age at the time of Jesus' ministry, also known as John Mark. And, um, and so Mark not being an eyewitness of everything, there's a veiled reference to himself in, in, uh, later in, in his gospel, I think it's in chapter 14, but not being an eyewitness, he relied, it is believed strongly, on the eyewitness account of the apostle Peter. And in fact, Peter will write in his epistle, 1 Peter 5, verse 13, that Mark is a son in the faith, that Peter was like an older mentor to Mark, and so much of what Mark is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write uh, is probably greatly influenced uh, through the apostle Peter. And I say all that because I find it interesting what is left out in this part right here, because this whole part about Jesus saying, well, who do men say that I am? Well, some say that you're Jeremiah, some Elijah, some a prophet of old. Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And that story is recorded in Matthew chapter 16, and there's eight verses given to it, and there's only four verses given here. And the part that's left out is when Jesus commends Peter, and he says, Peter, that's wonderful. But he, he adds, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. In other words, you're just not smart enough, Pete, to get this on your own, that the Father revealed this to you from heaven. So on the one hand, he commends Peter, but on the other hand, he basically says, you're not smart enough to figure this out on your own. And I think I can just see Peter saying to Mark, why, why don't you leave that part out? Yeah, just leave that part out here. Just, just mention that I was the one that said you are the Christ. Anyway, I'm maybe making too much out of it, but I find it interesting what's not in the part here in Mark's gospel when Jesus kind of uh, told him how he figured it all out. Well, verse 31, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. This is no mystery. He's telling them in advance about his crucifixion. 
He's telling them how he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be crucified. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Don't you love this guy? He's rebuking God to his face. You don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. No doubt it's done out of love. I mean, he's hearing Jesus talking about how he's about ready to be killed, and he doesn't want to believe this is going to happen. He pulls Jesus aside and and rebukes him for this. Stop saying this, because he doesn't want it to happen. Who would want it to happen to someone that you love? And, uh, And Jesus, however, verse 33, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, plural, he rebuked Peter. So Peter pulls Jesus aside privately, and Jesus is going to rebuke Peter publicly in front of the other disciples just so that they can, I guess, all take a little warning and so that they can know what's going to go down. And and this is what Jesus said. He said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Another reminder to us that Peter's not possessed here, but even the most godly people can be influenced by the whispers of Satan. Be on your guard against the whispers of Satan, the things that he would whisper into your head and into your heart and rebuke those things. Uh, Peter was kind of a pawn in this moment in, uh, in Satan's schemes, but Jesus rebukes Satan. You don't have, and he says to Peter, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then he called the crowd to him. Now this is a, now he includes the crowd. Is it going to be a teaching moment here? He, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, notice this, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Please underline that. This is very sober words that Jesus speaks here. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and, circle that, and take up his cross and follow me. There's an and here. It's not denying is taking up your cross. It's denying and take up your cross. And what Jesus is going to say here is that the cost of following him is twofold. That what this passage teaches us is that we need to deny self and we need to die to self. Deny and die. It's deny and die. Deny self and die to self. Let me read the, through the end of the chapter. I'll come back and comment briefly. He says, verse 35, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Notice, Jesus often speaks in great paradoxes where things don't seem to make sense. It's kind of counterintuitive. Uh, you know, the Bible talks about... Uh, when you're weak, then you're strong. The Bible talks about uh, it's better to give than to receive um, because when you give, you receive. It's just counterintuitive. The Bible talks about when you are the least, you are the greatest. And, and here Jesus is saying, when you die, you live. It's just fascinating the way all through the, the Bible, really, in the New Testament in particular, in the words of Jesus, how things are often in these paradoxical terms. It sounds, it sounds so counterintuitive. What do you mean if, if I give, I will receive? What do you mean if I die, I will live? Well, he goes on to, to describe it. He says in verse 36, Well, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So he says, if you really want to follow me, you're going to have to do two things. You're going to have to deny self and you're going to have to die to self. Now please note that denying self is not the same as self-denial. We practice self-denial all the time. Hopefully, you know, we don't indulge in everything. 
So we practice self-denial. A lot of times there are certain foods or, you know, we shouldn't eat, so we're going to deny ourselves. We, um, it's self-denial. Uh, there, there's certain material things that we realize, you know, it's not in our budget and, and, uh, and, and I don't have the right motives for wanting to buy this, and so I'm going to, I'm going to deny myself. That, that's self-denial. That, that, that is self-denial is when self is still on the throne, but you have enough discipline to deny yourself certain things. That's different from denying self for the sake of Christ. Self-denial is self's on the throne in the center. But denying self means Christ is in the center of my life. And now I want to live my life in a way that his thoughts become my thoughts, his will becomes my will, his desires, my desires. What he hates, I want to hate. What he loves, I want to love. When, when his heart is broken over someone or something, I want my heart to be broken over something or someone. In other words, we become so Christ-centered that he's on the throne of our lives. It's not being self-centered and then choosing to deny ourselves certain pleasures or desires or whatever. It is Christ on the center of the throne of our heart and then living our lives with him central to everything about how we think and talk and conduct business and relate to our spouse and raise our kids and manage money. He is central to our lives. That's denying self. That's denying self. But then the second part here is even more difficult because then he commands us to take up our cross and to follow him. And everybody would have known in that day that the cross was this symbol of death, a certain death. This is a one-way ticket. Crucifixion, there's no turning back. And they would have understood this as being very, very serious and challenging words. What does this mean? We're to, we're to die to self. Less of me, more of Jesus. We should always be looking at how our lives in the flesh constantly want to gravitate back to the old life before we came to know Christ. And we have to die to self. We have to crucify self and selfish tendencies and selfish desires and the passions. Not all passions are wrong. Not all desires are wrong. A lot of passions and desires are God-given. But we better know the difference between what my flesh wants and what is unhealthy, sinful desires and what are godly, God-given desires. And there's a big difference. But in dying to self, this is why Paul would write in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, when he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I want to live, Paul says, a crucified life that is dying to self so that the Lord Jesus might be preeminent in my life. And that's why he would also write in Philippians, in chapter 3, in verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. But then he adds, he says, not that I've already obtained all this, or already been made perfect. He says, I'm still in process. Dying to self is an ongoing practice that you and I have to recognize every single day of our lives. And he says, I I haven't attained all this, I haven't been made perfect, but he says, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting is what's behind, the old flesh, the old ways, the old life before Christ, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Amen? 
And he talks there about how I have to die to self. I haven't been made perfect. I haven't attained everything. One day I will. But until that day, I press on to take hold of that price for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. No looking back and no turning back. Let the past be in the past. No more gratifying the desires of the sinful nature before I came to know Christ. I want to die to the old self. And every time my flesh raises its ugly head, this is what the Bible teaches we all need to do, is to make a conscious decision. I'm going to die to that. Less of my flesh more of Jesus, denying self and dying to self, that we might be sold out followers of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for joining Pastor Gary today for this study in the Gospel of Mark on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear this teaching again or explore additional messages, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on Teachings. You can also download our mobile app. Find the On The Go link under the Teachings tab. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. We also meet on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. CornerstoneConnection.cc is the place to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. You can also see what's going on during the week and what Cornerstone Chapel offers in the way of small groups, youth ministry, and more. We'd love to meet you, but if you're not able to join us in person right now, that's okay. We're live streaming each Sunday and Wednesday service at CornerstoneConnection.cc. Our 11.45 a.m. service also offers interpreting for those who speak Spanish. If you have any questions for us, or if you'd like to share a prayer request, we'd be honored to talk with you. Send us an email at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but thanks for joining us to study the book of Mark. We hope you'll tune in again here on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know